chapter 1, verse 8, as we be, uh, verse, verses 1 through 8, as we begin our new series on Christ Unrivaled. Paul speaking to this church, probably about a five, six, seven-year-old church in his time, says the following. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the, of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it is also, also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. May God bless the reading of his inspired and inerrant word. You may be seated. So they, they're saying in America these days on the, on the airways and radio and on the internet that Christianity is dying. Perhaps you heard of the Pew study that came out a few weeks back that said that uh, Christianity is on a distinct, uh, even a precipitous decline uh, statistically. People associating themselves with Christianity apparently took a big drop in the last five or so years from 73% of the nation to 60%. Most agree there are multiple reasons for this. Um, Christian uh, liberalism, with its liberal tendencies in churches, has led to a major decline in um, the mainline denominations, the big ones, like the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians even. Nominal Roman Catholicism has also uh, have more people coming clean with their weak associations with the Roman Catholic Church. And, of course, there is this rise of the nuns, which is often the next generation of, of, of young people uh, among the millennials, usually, who really like to say they have no affiliation with any religion at all. Adding to that are, of course, the rise in the last 10, 20 years in the wake of wars and disillusionment, the atheists who have gained a popular vote and who have said, hey, you know, it's okay if you don't believe. And that certainly has become more of a popular sense in our culture. In short, people have become a lot more honest about what they, where they stand religiously. Now, this is a little unnerving for those of us who grew up in a so-called Christian America. But I think it also confirms for most of us that what we've always thought is true, that the Christian America has really never been that Christian after all. The truth is, Christianity isn't dying it is alive and well and will always be in America or beyond because it has always survived by the grace of God through history. The truth is, casual, cultural Christianity is dying. And guys, you know what we can say about that. Good riddance. Good riddance. The result is we live in spiritually 
incre- the result of this uh, passing, rather, of casual Christianity is now we live in spiritually confusing times where more worldviews, more uh, ideas of who Jesus is, a whole ideas of what it means to even live are coming up among our ranks. And that is why we are going to spend time in Colossians this summer uh, getting back into the first basic things of Christianity. And in 2015, you might remember, is our year of grounding at Redeemer. And, and studies like the Pew study that came out and the decline of Christianity present us with another reminder of what is it we believe? Where are we going with this? What are we about as a church? So we're going to spend the summer turning to Colossians and getting grounded in the gospel once again. And we're going to do so by going first into our chapter 1 today, where we're, getting, we're going to find that Paul gives us characteristics, even affirmations of what a Christian, even a Christian church, uh, should be grounded in if it's going to be real Christianity. So our question is, how can we know God is working among us so that we are established, grounded in the faith? What are those marks, those characteristics of being grounded in the faith as a Christian and even a Christian community? Well, I've got five uh, grounding points for us that'll serve kind of like a stakes in the ground for a tent, if you will, or if you want to use a house analogy, they're like the, the pouring the foundation in multiple places. These five points really point us to what a real Christianity looks like uh, from an apostle's point of view in the things he highlights. And it comes first in a, a, the first grounding would be in Christ, the second prayer, the third virtues, the fourth, the gospel. And the fifth will be love. Those are the five uh, groundings we're going to focus on. Now, these grounding points, again, are going to point us to what real Christianity looked like. So let's get to that. Let's look at the first verses and what Paul tells us about the whole grounding of the faith and where it starts. And it starts in these first verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So apparently the Apostle Paul and his uh, protege, the young Timothy, are writing of the Colossians. And they're writing them probably around 60 A.D., which is late in Paul's life. We don't know for sure where he is when he writes it, but there is a high probability he's in Rome And he's in prison by this point. He has been uh, 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 retained by the Roman authorities and brought into prison. And uh, in the process, he has apparently heard about the Colossians from a guy named Epaphras, who's named later on in our text, who visits him and tells him about what's going on in the church there. And in so doing... Paul is writing and reaching out to the Colossians to speak to them about what's going on in this church. But, you know, here's what's interesting. You ready for this? For all we know and from what we can tell from biblical history, Paul has never been to Colossae. He has never met these people. He doesn't know them on a whole personally. While he knows certain probably individuals from the church, he doesn't know them as a whole. And yet he reaches out to them with this letter, this well-thought letter about what the gospel is for them. Paul, of course, wrote to this young church in Colossae, which was a little bit like Monroe. You should know that. 
It wasn't a very big city or it wasn't an influential city like Ephesus or Corinth or, of course, Rome. And you can see on the map here where, um, where uh, uh, the city of Colossae is. You see it right in the middle there. It's about 100 miles uh, to the east of Ephesus, which was really probably the most influential city in, in Asia Minor in this whole area. So it wasn't kind of like this super important city. But there were churches being planted there in Laodicea, which is nearby, and Hierapolis also. Plants, churches were being planted and people were coming to Christ. So Paul writes to these Colossians uh, to reach out to them as Christians in a Christian church. So here's the question we have to ask around this. Why would Paul reach out to people he didn't know? Why would he write this letter and show such interest in what's going on there and have so many thoughts about how they're doing as a community when he's never met them as a whole personally? Well, the answer comes in our text, even in these first few verses, where there's one repeating word, one repeating name that connects them together in a powerful way. And it shows up when Paul says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then he speaks of the, of the saints and the faithful brothers at Colossae as being in Christ. Who's the common denominator? Christ. Christ is. And this is an important idea in the whole book of Colossians that we have to keep in mind. Is that Paul is going to go out of his way throughout this book to talk about Jesus. Who he is and what difference he makes in his person and his work and in his, in his work among us as his people. This is important because in the end, Paul and the Colossians really probably had nothing in common. I mean, think about it. Paul is a Jew, a recovering Pharisee who once was violent against Christians, even set out to kill them as a Pharisee's hitman, if you will. The Colossians were from all kinds of places, and they, in particular, lived in a pluralistic culture with all kinds of religions as their background and in their presence. And what Paul was calling, was wanting to highlight for them is the importance of Christ in his own life and in their life because Christ is who they have in common. So really, what you face here in these people in Colossae is a people who need Christ just like us. Christ, in the end, is the center of what goes on in church. It is from him, through him, and to him that all of life goes to. And Paul is highlighting that in our midst. And you might ask, now, why would that be such a big deal? Of course they love Christ. Of course they worship Christ. Of course. Well, here's the deal. In Colossae, they had so many religious things going on around them with the Greco-Roman gods, as well as their own local deities that had been around for centuries before the Greco-Roman gods came in. And they even had a Jewish influence, especially showing up in the church, to such a degree that conflict was going on. Syncretism was going on. You know that, right? When you live in a pluralistic culture, the two things that show up among a people are this. They either uh, become, they go, go fighting each other over their worldviews, or they say, hey, let's all just get along and, hey, I'll just borrow your view, you borrow my view, we'll, we'll work it out later on. Does that sound familiar? Because that's exactly where we live today. 
so many different religions coming our way that Paul wants to speak about Christ to these people and focus them on the one true Lord. That's how, that is a fundamental grounding point for any part of, of true Christianity is being grounded in Christ. In fact, that's an important part of this text as well. When he says they are in Christ, he's talking about something even bigger. It's not just that they have Jesus in common with each other, but it's that Jesus is in relationship with them and they are with him. That's the wonder of this text, is that when you enter a living relationship with Christ by faith, you are automatically connected to each other, not just here in this room, by knowing each other personally, but to Christians all the way around the world, even in places like New England and Fairfield, Connecticut. The beauty of this is Christ draws us together around himself, and we are together in Christ, and that is a key crowning point for authentic Christianity. So that's the first grounding point. Second grounding point is this. The second grounding point uh, shows up in Paul's prayer in verse 3. Look at this. He says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Paul starts almost every one of his pastoral epistles to all these churches around uh, the Greco-Roman Empire. He starts almost every one with this, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. In this case, he's praying for people he didn't even know. And he's praying because... He knew that churches like Colossae needed God to, in, to work in their lives, and he's asking them to do the thing. And that is a key aspect of any kind of rhythm in a church, is praying so that you ask the power of God to come in your life and don't rely on your own power. Now, that's a hard thing for us to hear as Americans, especially American men like me, who's like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Can do. Get her done, you know? But Christianity is different. It says, Lord Jesus, get it done. Prayer is where you go to him and ask. And in Paul's case in particular, he's not just asking. He's actually thanking. He's thanking God for what's been going on in their midst. Now, I have to say, when you're praying... As a church, and this is a key grounding point of being uh, uh, connected to a real Christ and real Christianity, uh, you will find yourself praying for other Christians, like Paul was. And why do you think that is? Why do you pray for other Christians? And how, do you, how can you know someone has a healthy prayer life by praying with other Christians? Well, here it is. When you're in relationship with Christ, and a meaningful one in Christ, you're actually seeking him, wanting to know him, getting in his word and praying to him personally about your own needs. You know what the Lord will do? He'll put people on your heart. You see, when you start knowing Christ, you start wanting the same things that he wants and praying the same prayers he's praying at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's the implication of what's going on here. Jesus is praying for you, and Paul's just a reflection of that. And God wants us to pray for others as a reflection of how Jesus is interceding even for others. Now, I have to tell you that it's an extraordinary thing to know you've been prayed for. Over the last year, I have to share with you, and I've thought about this a lot recently, 
I have been on the receiving end of many prayers and encouraging words. Having sent out two pastors in the last year, which is highly unusual, I might add, and they're off leading their own uh, uh, churches and it's going really well, thanks be to God. Uh, we have been understaffed as a church, and, and I'm pleased to say the officers, the staff, uh, the team leaders of this church have done a phenomenal job of uh, filling in gaps and holes that everyone needs to be encouraged about how your leadership has really stepped up. But I have to say it's also been stressful for me. And I don't say this to elicit your sympathy because all of you go through hard times on your jobs just like I do. That's just part of living in a, fut- in a world with futility sometimes. But the interesting thing is in the midst of this, I've, I've gotten these little texts and emails from people kind of out of the blue, just random. And they show up regularly uh, in my inbox or on my phone and they say, I'm praying for you. Hang in there. Uh, praying the Lord will give you grace and rest in the spirit. Things like that. In fact, this past week, I got one from a, a professor of mine who lives in Louisiana. And he was just saying, he, I was on his heart. And I, I kid you not, as soon as I pulled that thing out, I about cried. Because the timing was amazing in terms of what I was struggling with at the moment. You and I have no idea how powerful prayer plays a role in our lives together as a church. And we at Redeemer, we're kind of tired of being the church that just happens to pray a little bit. Yeah, let's just say a prayer. We want to be a church that prays, that actually says, wait, before we do anything, before we go anywhere, let's stop and seek Jesus. What does he want? Asks of Jesus, what does he want? Before we go off on our visions and our dreams. Real Christianity is grounded in a praying life together, and that is what Jesus calls us to. Now, I want to add one thing. I've found through the years that when I'm not praying for people, I go to a new place. And it's a bad place. And it's the place of contempt. When you're not praying for your brothers and sisters, the flesh just goes towards contempt. Finding the error, despising the person, a fault finding in many ways. I encourage everyone here, if you start praying for your brothers and sisters in the church, even non-Christians beyond the church, it'll change the way you look at people. It'll change your heart for them, your affection and your warmth. My repentance is regularly repenting from contempt in my older brother ways and going to the way of love in prayer. Try that with your spouse if you're struggling there. Try that with your family if you're struggling there. It doesn't mean you don't have to do hard things or say hard things, but it does give you a new heart for the person you're praying for. So we are called to a life of prayer, not of contempt. But that brings us to the third characteristic of our, of our text, of what, how we're grounded, uh, the church and Christians are grounded. And that comes in verses 4 and 5 where it talks about the virtues that show up. Paul says, I always thank God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And he talks about why. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Apparently, as verse 7 says, Epaphras came back and said, Hey, you wouldn't believe the stuff that's going on with the Colossian church. Amazing. Let me ask you, did he talk about the ABCs of church? Attendance, buildings, and cash. Was that 
the uh, diagnostic question of what's going on in a healthy way, a spiritual way in a church. No. You know what they talked about? Man, they've got faith. They've got love. They've got hope. Now, how often in America do we actually measure the church by that? The real spiritual measure of health in a church is the, are the three cardinal virtues of the Christian faith. Faith, hope, and love. You notice that in our text? Comes right, just, you see another parallel. You hear it in, a, uh, in weddings this time of year in 1 Corinthians 13. It, those three things are the measure of spiritual health with a Christian and with the church. And why is that? Why do they make such a big deal? Well, let's talk about faith. Faith in Christ is fundamental to following Christ. It's how we are, it's the instrument through which we are saved and how we follow Jesus on a daily level. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In faith, we learn to lean on the cross, not just for the forgiveness of sins once and for all, we first believe, but on a daily basis, I go to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I need your grace again. I need the cross. I have sinned against you. Faith is what sends us to trust in Christ's righteousness and not our own, as we've talked about in the past. It's too easy as a Christian to rely on your own righteousness and think, well, at least I bring something to the table, when really we bring nothing. You must rely on Christ alone for your righteousness. Faith is what helps us embrace the, re- the resurrection of Christ from the dead. You know why that matters? Because then we have hope that we're not dealing with a dead God. We're dealing with a living, active God we can be in a living relationship with. That's what faith does. Paul talks at length about this throughout all of his letters. But then he turns in this text to love, which is connected to faith. Galatians 5. It says that real faith expresses itself in love. It works itself out in love. In other words... You can't have faith without love in the Christian faith. How are they related? Well, you're saved by grace through faith. You're not saved by love. But love is the evidence of authentic faith, of someone who has encountered grace. But then Paul, in our text, goes kind of out of order with faith, hope, and love, doesn't he? He goes, faith, love. Then he says, hope. Apparently, the Colossians had faith and love because of their hope. Because of their hope of what was laid up for them in heaven, as the text says. Indeed, in their context, in their culture, there were so many different worldviews, so many ideas of what's true, so many ideas of how you live, that in those confusing contexts, you actually lose hope. You start to think, where is all this going? But here's the beauty of Christianity. Christianity says this is going somewhere through Christ. Christ is leading us somewhere. He's going to come back one day. He's going to give us a resurrection body for all the aches and pains we encounter in older age. Even the injuries and wounds we experience in younger age. You're going to get a body that's going to be amazing. Just like Christ's own body. When Jesus comes back, he's also going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. And we get to live in paradise with an inheritance that's a crown of righteousness. All kinds of gifts and goodies beyond our wildest dreams. 
But if that's not enough, the one thing that we get that is the blessing above all blessings is that we get Christ himself. When Jesus returns and we're in the new heavens and new earth with him, we actually get to see his beauty. We get to see his glory and his wonder and his splendor. And we get to enjoy him and think about that for eternity. Dwell on it, meditate on it, as Psalm 84 says. Psalm 27 says, it is something that is actually a life worth living. Hope, in other words, sustains the Christian when everything seems like it's falling apart. Let me ask you something. When you encounter hard things, when life is confusing for you, as it can be for me at times, where do you go with that? Do you go to despair? Do you go to despair? When you face a job that is full of futility, do you go to despair? When your family or extended family blows up again and you're going, what is going on? Do you go to despair? When you feel jabbed by other non-Christians for your Christian faith, do you feel despair? Paul says, don't go to despair, go the other way. Go to hope. Go to hope in what's coming, not to escape the present, but to give yourself a foundation for living now by hoping in what's really coming in the end, what's promised by God in Christ. We are citizens of heaven, sojourners on this earth now. We live with faith, hope, and love because real Christianity is grounded in faith, hope, and love, those virtues. Fourth virtue, how do we get there? What stirs our faith, hope, and love? Because a lot of us say, okay, these are big virtues. How do you get there? What is it? What grounds us in prayer and what gets us to knowing Christ? Well, look here in our verses in verse 6. It says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it is also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Fourth affirmation of grounding that Paul makes in our text about the Christians and the church in Colossae is that they are grounded in the word of truth. Paul is saying that all prayer, all faith, hope, and love stems from the word of God in Scripture. He describes it as the truth. You notice that, right? That definite article, the and he's saying that for a reason. He's saying that because in, when they live in a culture that has all kinds of things of saying, this is true, no, this is true, no, this is true, no, this is true, this God is true, this way of living is true, it's dizzying. And Paul says, you can go back to one place as the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. All matters of God and what he wants of us is right here in Scripture. And Jesus himself said it in Matthew 7 when he said, If any man hears my words and does them, he, he is like a man who built his house on a rock. It will handle all the weather, all the terrible storms that will come. And that's because it's based on the truth of God first. Well, Paul goes on further. Did you notice in our text he calls that truth something else? He renames it. He calls it the gospel. 
The gospel is the big picture that describes all that Jesus has done in history and will do in history and how it all comes together from the very first man to the day Jesus returns and establishes that new heavens and new earth, how everything connects. That's the gospel, the good news, the larger story that we get to be a part of as Christians. So when things are kind of crazy, confusing, your culture turns upside down, you go, what's the bigger story here? The bigger story is Christ and what he has done, is doing, and will do finally and fully in the future. The beauty of the gospel is simply this. And this is what he's getting to in our text. It changes lives. Did you notice he talks about it's increasing, it's fruitful? The implication is that as the gospel goes out, things happen. There are more Christians and more lives transform. Now, let me ask you a question about that. If you were going to change the world, how would you change the world? Well, a lot of us here have our own opinions. It'll be like, well, if we just got politics to where it was better. If we just got FIFA to get their act together. Or the NFL. If we just had better education. If we just had uh, better families, now that resonates with us here, particularly in Union County, where family is such a big deal. Now, I want to tell you, all those things can be good things, and we need Christians to engage those and be an influence there. But let me ask you this. If God was going to change the world, how would he do it? Well, the answer here is in our text. He would send his son And get the word out about him. (laughs) And you know what's so weird about that? It's weird is it doesn't have the impact that we would expect. That is, we would expect something that has flash and bang and quick results. But nah, the gospel's like a mustard seed. Grows slowly, steadily, moves in our hearts, among people, and out in places. In other words, God uses this strange gift of the word the gospel to change the world, the gospel of his son. As if that's not enough. Paul goes to yet another place to describe the gospel. He describes it in verse 6 as not just the word of truth, the gospel, but as a gospel of grace. Now here is where it gets very strange. You know, in the ancient world, What they would often say to you if you greeted somebody, it didn't matter what religion or or kind of culture you're part of, they would often say, peace be with you. That was a common phrase. You even hear it among the Muslims today. uh, uh, Salam, that's uh, peace, if you will. Do you notice how Paul starts out our whole text? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Why is that? Because the thing that distinguishes Christianity among all the religions is grace. This idea that instead of us performing for God so we can be in with him, Christianity says it's the other way around. God performs for us so we can be in with him in Christ. All the other religions of the world say this, I obey, therefore I'm forgiven. Christianity says something really radical. Through Christ, I am forgiven, therefore... I obey because he loved me. 
This is a really different kind of religion. This is a different way of understanding life. And for those of us like me who regularly struggle with performance anxiety or performance issues spiritually even, I'm not doing enough, I'm not studying my Bible enough, really hard on ourselves, this is freeing truth. You don't have to perform to make God love you. You can't do it enough. Christ has done it for you. Christ has died on a cross and bled to death so that we could have life. This is a radical idea. Grace through a Christ crucified is really strange in all of our cultures. And here's what you do. When you go out and you live in the world, when your families, with your uh, neighborhoods, yes, even in your workplaces, listen to the worldviews that are going on. And they usually go like this. They didn't perform for me. I'm not going to love them. They didn't give me what I want. I won't love them. I will punish them. Listen to that. It's out there. Jesus comes a different way. They didn't perform for me. They didn't love me. I will give my life for them. That is the gospel truth, the gospel of grace. This brings us then to the final and fifth uh, grounding that we have in the gospel that Paul talks about in our text. Uh, affirmation that shows up in verse 7 where Paul talks about how... Um, uh, excuse me, verse 8, 7 and 8, where Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Again, here it is again. In a world where measurables in, the, in a church, among other things, can show up in, you know, numbers, ABCs and things like that, the real measurable for a Christian, the mark of an authentic Christian who's been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, who has tasted grace, is love. It's love. Let me ask you, as a Christian, let me ask us as a church, what do you want to be known by as a Christian? What do you want to be known by? Do you want to be known that Redeemer's a pretty swell place, we're really friendly, warm, and all that? Great. We have a really cool children's ministry, nice uh, youth ministry. And of course, there's always that handsome pastor. I'm definitely playing. You don't want that, believe me. Do you want to be known as a place with amazing vision? Look, there's a place for all of that stuff. There really is, minus the handsome pastor. What God wants and the thing that Paul and the apostles and Jesus is looking for the most is love. How are we loving each other? How are we giving to one another with our words, resources sometimes, but far more than that? How are we encouraging each other? How are we reaching out even to the lost among, uh, on our edges and beyond, telling them that there is a God who loves them because you have felt his love recently. See, that's the real art of following Jesus, of being in him, of, of praying, of getting in the word and of living in the virtues of faith and hope is that if you're living in that, you will start to love because you're tasting the love of God in Christ. You can't give what you 
haven't received. And that's true of love as well. If you feel like you struggle to love, which I do many times in many circumstances, that's the exact time where you have to go and be with Jesus. That's the exact time sometimes that people, Jesus will bring people in your life among Christians to love on you. That's the exact time where you will learn love in an, an amazing way. I pray that the vision of this church is that while we will have great ministries and reach people for Christ, plant churches, do a host of things, the one thing I pray that we will actually be known as is a loving church. A loving church. With each other, with our neighbors. Maybe that's tough love sometimes, but love nonetheless. That's what Paul is looking for. You and I need to pray in the Spirit that we will actually become lovers. And I'll tell you, the adventure of that piece is a, is a scary one because as soon as you start praying, Lord, make me a lover, God will expose how you're not a lover. <laughs> but that's okay because the cross is right there waiting for you. The resurrection is right there with the power to remind you that you can have a new life, even as a Christian, in a new, fresh way, a renewed way. Pray for our church. That we would become a people grounded in Christ, in prayer, in the virtues of the Christian faith, the real ones. That we would be a people of the word, the gospel of grace. And that we would love well. All through Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, now as we come to your table, we pray that you would awaken our hearts to your grace and your power. That you would lead us now, Lord to experience love. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you for being the one true Christ who loved us far beyond all other gods by bleeding on a cross for us. We long that you would ground us in these truths. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with